Let us pray for God's blessing and the preaching of his word. O God, our Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and nearest kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. So as you know, we've, been, uh, we've begun a series on a piece of the Great Commission. And that is, all that I have commanded them, teach them, that is the disciples, to observe all the things that I have commanded. And last week we talked a little bit about God's word uh, on the whole. And now this week we are beginning with a study of the Ten Commandments. Or as I would like us to consider calling them the Ten Words. We are the ones uh, who have... Uh, associated it with commandments, but when you look at the text, it actually says words, and we'll get into that more in just a little bit. But you know how I am. I like us to look at context. Context is everything. You can't just take a passage, even the Ten Words or Ten Commandments, and pull them out and say, well, I understand what's happening here. There's a whole lot going on and leading up. So I want us to consider the book of Exodus as a little bit of an introduction. Now, the good news is, folks, we won't be here for four hours. I'm not going to exposit the whole book of Exodus through verse chapter 19 and then start the sermon. So, But I do want us to consider a few things. When we consider the fact that the first commandment speaks to having no other gods before me, God has just finished declaring war on the gods and kings of the world, specifically the ones in Egypt. We can see that God takes to task both the rulers of men and their gods. We see in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2, it says this, And Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. So here you have Pharaoh, the king, the leader of all of Egypt. And remember, folks, you've got to remember this in history. You know, Egypt was a moderate kingdom, but they were raised up to greatness through God's hand, through Joseph. Remember when the famine comes on? What happens? Egypt is a kingdom. Joseph is, is raised up through the work of God. And Egypt becomes the proverbial savior of the world through grain. But while they are doing it, they didn't do it for free. They took money and they became wealthy. And eventually, the Pharaoh not only takes the monies of his own people and the lands around him, but he actually begins to take the lands and the lands move out of the... the ownership of the people and become uh, into the, the land holdings of Pharaoh himself. He is raised up. And so one thing that we could certainly say is that the Pharaoh at the time of Moses, right, he has, was not properly instructed by his father to remember what raised him up to this place. Here he says, who is Yahweh that I should obey 
and let Israel go. It's very interesting because God is intervening in time and he's going to transform the world. In chapter 7 of Exodus, in verse 2, it says, You shall speak all that I command you. This is God speaking to Moses. And Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of this land. Now look at what God says. He is sovereign in this. He says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed you so that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Now, remember, who picked the fight? God is sovereign, and we know that God's going to hold Pharaoh here, but Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh? Psalm 2, he was raging against the Lord Almighty. Later on in chapter 7 and verse 17, it says this, Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Now everyone knows that you need water to live, and if you live in an arid and desert land, you need that water. And God turned it into blood, and the fish died, and it stank. But God doesn't just do things in his sovereign will and generalities. No, he does it in time, and he sets it for particular days and times, because it says in chapter 7 and verse 25, and seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. God turned the river into blood. It was full of death. It stank. It wasn't incense of worship to God that was in his nostrils. It was stink of death. And it was set for a particular time. Later on we see that the river out of the river comes frogs. Again, death comes and it stank when they died. And later on, not only does in, in that plague... He, it, it, it goes on to say that then the frogs then stayed in the river. God could have the frogs come out, have them get everywhere, get into everything, bring death, stink, and then stop it and cause all the frogs to no more come out of the river. Here we see that the magicians of Pharaoh's court could replicate some of these things. However we're going to find that they are limited in what they do. I don't know what it really means when it says they replicated this, whether they had some trick where they could push some frogs out of water and make them do something. I don't know. But it's interesting as we look at things, all of these things have happened so far in the plagues, and Pharaoh won't repent. The people of Egypt, or vast numbers of them, won't repent. And then you see Moses, and he takes dust, and he puts it out, and that causes boils on the land. 
Now, this is really interesting. When, when you say dust, when you say ashes, what do you think? There are two things. First of all, man comes from the dust, right? There's curses there, but how do we stave off the curse of sin? Through repentance. How do you, how do you in the scriptures illustrate you're in a time of repentance? You put on sackcloth and ashes. Because of their refusal to repent, the ashes, which should have been a sign of their repentance, becomes the actual boils of judgment in their lives. Later on, we see that the flies that come, and when that happens, it's limited just to the Egyptian lands and not Goshen. God sovereignly works, brings his judgments and his blessings, and he does it all simultaneously. Not just in the history of Egypt, but in our lives each and every day. We see that what happens in this with the flies and these other uh, plagues, everything is corrupted. Where? Not where God's people are, but those who are in rebellion. And it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 3, it says this, Behold, the hand of Yahweh will be on your cattle in the field, on the horses and the donkeys and the camel and on the oxen and the sheep. And it a very pestilence, very severe. But again, it's not in Goshen. Yahweh set an appointed time and they died. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 11, it says that the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils that they had. And they couldn't replicate and stop these things. In Exodus chapter 9, verse 12, it says this, But Yahweh hardened the heart of Pharaoh. There was a call for repentance, but he did not. He rejected the call of the Spirit to repent. And remember, God's sovereign hand is at play because in Exodus 9, 16, But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name would be declared. Where? In all the earth. And of course, we also see that hail comes from the sky and destroys and kills. But it's interesting. God gives a warning. He says, Get the people out. Get the animals out. God gives them an opportunity to save themselves. And when they rejected God's call, God brought the judgment on them. God brought death upon man, beast, and herbs, the plants that give us food. It's very interesting. Here we see Moses comes out. If you don't, if you don't pay attention to this, you see Moses comes out and actually stops the storm. He, he is a precursor of Jesus bringing peace. Also tells us that that storm where Jesus was uh, active in was a demonstration not only of God's power, but of judgment. And again, we see everything from the locust eating all the food that was left. Remember, how did they get great? Through the food that they were providing for themselves and the nations, and God exacts judgment because they failed to recognize Yahweh as the God over all who had given them everything. And in Exodus chapter 10, it says this, 
and that you may tell, and, and th- here's the question, there's why is all this happening? It says that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's sons the mighty things I have done in Egypt and my sons and my signs which I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. It's very important. Again, I pointed out in the very beginning that Pharaoh did not do a good job of teaching his son that would be Pharaoh that these things came from God, that we need to teach our children. And people of God, remember this. You might say, I'm single, or I'm older, and I don't have kids here, and I don't have grandkids here. But you take an oath when we baptize the babies to assist the parents in bringing up those children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We are all called to the discipleship of the children in this community, every last one of us. You need to tell your testimony and the testimonies of God from His Word and the things He's done in your life so that all may be edified, including the children in this congregation. And of course, we also see in other places in the books of Exodus that Yahweh says, about midnight, I'll go out into the midst of Egypt. He sets times. He intervenes in history, and He transforms the world. God's plan is in the real world at a particular time and place in history, down to the hour, even with specific situational stipulations. Note that God is dealing with signs of fruitfulness, both in food and in propagation of people. The firstborn, remember, because he kills not just the firstborn of the people, but of all of the livestock and animals. The firstborn are the signs of fruitfulness. And we see later on, God points out that the firstborn of the animals belong to God. But of course, all this happens, and there is no death in Goshen to the people of God. All of this sets the stage for God to give His ten words to His people. So now I want to talk to you just for a moment on the, on the form of the ten words And all of this is introduction that helps us see rightly when we come to that short three verses that we're going to expound upon. I know you're saying, man, you could take half your sermon just to set it up. But but people of God, you really need to know that you can't just grab things and say, well, that's just it. I took that one verse, I cut it out, it's just that. No, that's not how God's Word works. So here's, I'm going to give you a couple of things to think about. And then we'll read through the, the ten words. First of all, Yahweh is God's name that he personally gives and reveals to his people that that is his name. And the word Yahweh shows up in the ten words eight times. And it says, Yahweh, your God. So that is not only am I Yahweh and this is my name, but it, I am your God, Yahweh, five times. These ten words are not just commands. They contain imperatives, declarations, warnings, and promises. Here God, who has brought them out of bondage, that is slavery. And think about us as Christians. God brings us out of bondage or slavery to sin. But here we see that God has brought them out of bondage, out of slavery, in spite of and, the, and the, here, here's the people of God. In spite of passing through the Red Sea, having received manna and water, they've been grumbling and they've rebelled. And here at Sinai, God unveils himself to his people of Israel. Despite all their failures, 
despite the fact that he had to lead them along and provide everything for them, he still unveils himself, and he himself is speaking. Now remember last week when we talked about the two places that you see the Ten Words of the Ten Commandments, you see that it's in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Exodus 20, God is actually speaking to his people. In Deuteronomy 5, God is not speaking directly. Moses is giving a sermon on those ten words. And actually, all of the book of Deuteronomy, think on this now for just a second. Moses is there with the people of God at Sinai in Exodus 20. And he, has, he hears the words, and he worships God, and he works through the things, and he is faithfully trying to serve God, and he's worshiping God, and God gives all these directions on how to worship, and they do it for 39 years. And then he preaches this sermon in Deuteronomy. So he takes all that worship, all that contemplation, all that meditation on God's word and delivers the great sermon of Deuteronomy, which is not simply so that I can reiterate these things to you, but now I'm going to take them after worshiping God faithfully for 39 years, coming up on 40 years here, right? He's now transitioning and passing on, worshiping God rightly and God's word and, and, and expounding upon it. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. He's passing it on to Joshua and the people of Israel who are going to go into the, the promised land. The first five of the ten words all have explanations. It's really two sets of five. And you say, well, you know, there's all kinds of debates in history about how you want to mark out. Is it, is it four and six? Is it, is it seven and three? Is it five and five? I'm going to argue this morning that it's two sets of five. The, book, the, the number five in the scriptures is a military number, number. God is marshalling out his armies to the promised land. Five fingers on two hands to bring God's law. Consider the imagery from the temple. In the temple, there are ten lampstands. In two sets of five bringing light to our path. There are two rows of five tables of showbread in the temple, bringing us the bread of life. In the courtyard of the temple, there are ten water stands and two rows of five that come out in front of the great sea, symbolizing the waters of life from the throne of God, going out through the gate to all the world to bring the healing to the nations. Let us hear the ten words. And God spoke these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down nor serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those that hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not hold him guiltless 
who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which Yahweh your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. These ten words, if they're guarded and obeyed, will form Israel into a new creation. We should remember that, in, that at creation, in Genesis 1, God also gave us ten words. It says God spoke at creation ten times. These words are given on the third day, referring to at Sinai. He's being giving these words on the third day. It's interesting because the third day in creation is the day that God created fruitful plants to cover the earth. These words are spoken by God himself at Sinai in Exodus 20, unmediated. These ten words are a personal declaration that reveals Yahweh's character. This is much like a natural father's and son talk. If they follow the ten words, they will take up being true image bearers. The people of Israel are fulfilling the sonship and being called to maturity to take dominion as Yahweh's children. You know, we see this rightly fulfilled in the church in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son than an heir of God through Christ. Again, we can look at what God is doing in calling the people of Israel out of slavery, giving them the law for what purpose? To bring them from being a child, from not knowing how to act, how to be mature, and I'm going to give you my word, and I'm going to teach you how to worship, and I'm going to give you directions so that you may grow and mature so that when my son comes, Jesus Christ, you will become a full heir through the work of Christ. So there's your preface. We'll keep moving right along. God says this in Exodus 
chapter 20, verse 1. And again, it says, God spoke all these words. So these are God's ten words. And it begins with this, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Luther reminds us that the first word is a call to fear, love, and trust God above all things. In this word, Yahweh, our personal God, this is our personal God, is speaking to his covenant people. And he brings blesses and curses. He bears our sins. He speaks a trustworthy and authoritative word. We must take care not to pile our sins on other saviors. Any savior but Jesus is a false hope and in the end brings nothing but vaporous promises that we cannot grasp. These gods are built out of our own imaginations. Their foundations are simply sand. When the winds and waves come, it will bring destruction. You know, we have to grasp this, that it is only in God, through the work of Jesus Christ, that our sins are forgiven. And we have this tendency to look for other ways to deal with our sin, with our guilt, with our regret. People of God have no other gods. Look to none other than Jesus Christ and the great forgiveness that is found through God our Father. Psalm 115 really encourages us. I'm simply going to reference that and encourage you to read that. Psalm 115. I want you later on this week, read through Psalm 115. Be encouraged. And remember the center says this. Those, this is verse 8, those who make them, are like them, that is, those who make idols, those who look to others for the forgiveness of their sins. So is everyone who trusts in them. That is to say that idols are dumb. They have no hope. They can't speak. Our God, He speaks. He he spoke in time to the people of Israel in Exodus 20. He spoke at creation. And today He speaks clearly to us through His Word. Verse 12 of Psalm 115 says, Yahweh has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear Yahweh. God's blessings and forgiveness are available through Christ Jesus. I want to take a moment just for a few minutes and talk about potential idols. Now, there can be a great many of them. You know, we can often find ourselves loving and trusting a great many things more than Yahweh, our God. We are often worried about what others think of us. We must be aware that the relationships in our homes and businesses and communities drive us to actions instead of God Almighty and His words. Before I go any further, I want to say something. I'm going to get into some particulars here in just a few minutes of some idols that we can have tendencies to. I imagine at some point you're going to nod your head, yep, I rage against that idol. 
And there might be others of them that you might say, no, I question you on that. And that's okay. I want to preface it by saying this to you very carefully. Right? We, we, can, we can take things and we can misunderstand what's being said. Satan is very slick. He never tells us, well, I can't say never. He often doesn't tell us just bold-faced lies that are easy to identify. What does he do? He takes partial truths to deceive us. If something is a partial truth, what is it? It's a partial lie. And if it's a partial lie, it's all a lie. That being said, let us think on this for a moment. We have to remember that Satan is the father of lies who gives us just enough truth to make things look and sound believable. You know, it is a problem within all of our hearts and within the churches throughout all of histories. In fact, we all lean into what 2 Timothy chapter 4 warns us of. For a time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure all afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Remember, people of God, we are all priests. That blessing that you get at the end, it's a priestly blessing that, that I will bestow upon you at the end of the service. You are to go out and make disciples. But we have to remember, we cannot have other gods before Yahweh our God. So here we go. A few things that can trip us up. Natural law. This is the philosophy of the Greeks, Kant and Hume. It's a humanistic modern philosophy and ideologies that attempt to derive morality and ethics separated from God. This can be a temptation for all of us. A lot of times it happens because we do, we use scientific reductionism when we look at God's word. We just keep breaking it down. Take little verses. Well, this works for me. But we have to make sure that it's not about what works for us, but what does God's word actually say? Jeremiah 17, 9 teaches us to beware of our own perspectives. It says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Look at verse 10, though. I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. God knows our hearts. He knows the things that tempt us. Make sure you have no other gods, that you're not merely trying to draw ethics out of the Bible. You're not just trying to pull the moral out of the story. What is God teaching us in every part and aspect of our life? And remember, that one, we all kind of go, oh, yeah, I'm pretty good there, probably. Right? But I warn you, you've got to be careful of that. You know, Bible stories are not about what's the moral of the story. God is redeeming his people. 
That's the overarching thing. Statism. Watch out. We can come to believe that governments, politicians, and policies will deliver man from all that ails us, bringing us provision and salvation in every area of our life. We can certainly reflect on God's hand in Egypt, from a small and moderate kingdom to the provider of the nations and riches being brought down. Let us consider Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I will remember the name of Yahweh our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save Yahweh. May the king answer us when we call. Beware. Beware of science and technology. Dr. West, who wrote a very interesting book, I've got a copy upstairs if you want to buy it. I have my own copy, too. Uh, and uh, it's uh, about a lot of the ideas that C.S. Lewis wrote on science, or what he would call scientism. And he's, Dr. West summarizes the views of C.S. Lewis on scientism as the wrong-headed belief that modern science supplies the only reliable method of knowledge about the world. And thus the corollary that scientists should be the ones to dictate public policy and even our moral and religious beliefs simply on the basis of their scientific expertise. Now I want to be careful here because we can run totally amok with this. We've seen it in the last several years. But the fact of the matter is this has been going on for a very long time. C.S. Lewis has been dead for quite some time. And I think you can keep going back in history and find a great many as we came into the Industrial Revolution and science exploding. I am not against science. I am not against technology. But it is very important that we recognize that God's word is overall. God did create the world. God does give us instructions on worship. And there are some areas where we can look at and say, okay, there, there's something to this or that. But we cannot let pagan, unbelieving people guide and direct us. It's very important. Again, I'm not pushing back against everything of science. Science has done all kinds of things. And of course, it's very important to recognize that every time you see a large leap in history in the areas of science and technology, there's also a correlating, a correlating revival. The church grows immensely. So we need to pray for revival. We want to see technology continue to move forward. We want that. We embrace that. Just be careful. Job 38 tells us, and gives us a powerful response. But we should consider it. I'd, so I would just tell you, go and read Job 38 and think about that whole interaction of who is God. But I think the, the biggest response is John 1.1. 1, 1, and it says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life that was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Just understand, 
All truth comes from God. A lot of times we can have personal idols. Hosea chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, says this, Harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. We can have all kinds of internal, personal idols that are controlling us that we're enslaved to. And God says this, when you have that, it's indicative of idols. Because you look in verse 12 of Hosea chapter 4, and it says, My people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. For the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against God. Now here's a very important one. Look at verse 13. They, this is the people of God, who are in rebellion to God through, through all kinds of idol worship and harlotry, it says this, They offer sacrifices on the mountaintops, and they burn incense on the hills, under oaks, poplars, and terebinths, because their shade is good. Now this is interesting, because you've heard me talk about this before. Beware of worshiping God the way you want to worship God. We've talked about this. What are the high places? The high places you see in the Bible are where people are supposed to be worshiping, at Jerusalem, at the temple, not that they didn't have synagogues and places of prayer and study of scripture, they had those, but they were supposed to go to the temple. That whole judgment you saw in Amos this morning, where Amos is speaking uh, against uh, the kings of Israel, what's the problem? Well, Jeroboam sets up another place to worship God because he's worried he'll lose control of the kingdom that God gave him if he lets him go worship rightly. So he sets up another place to worship, and he brings back a clear idol right out of the gate. Why? Because he's worried about self-preservation. Right? Beware of worshiping God the way you want to, as if you can negotiate with God. What do they do here? These high places, they go up there. So they, even in, in Judah, where Jerusalem is, they go up to these high places, and they're worshiping Yahweh, because there, because there it distinguishes between idols and these high places, but it's because they don't want to submit to God and His Word and worship Him the way God prescribes. It's very interesting, too, and it says, Why do they offer it on the, sac- on the mountaintops? So they can worship God any way they want, and they're burning incense up on these high places, these hills, and they're under oaks and poplars and terebinths because their shade is good. What is shade about? protection from sunlight remember that passage in john 1 right jesus is the light they're trying to stay in darkness they don't want to comprehend they don't want to yield don't have any idols before yahweh your god all right some of you have said okay i'm good i'm okay Maybe not. I I would think that some of this indicts all of us. Here comes another one. And I think this is one where the church, I'm about to hit the church hard here. Are you ready? Even in the church, systematics and doctrines that have become ideas divorced from history, that is specific times and places, That's how God operates in specific times and places. If we take God's word and we simply make it about ideas, we were talking about this in relationship to the Apostles' Creed this morning. 
If we take systematics and doctrines and those become the things we focus on, they can lead us away from a relationship with God and we worship the idea of God and not God himself. We, were, we serve the living triune God whose sovereign will is unfolding all things at all times. We must not simply take the moral ethic of Scripture as if, Bible is, if the Bible is simply moral stories which may not have happened. We serve the God who created the universe and has moved and is moving in the created world to all men in all things. We run dangerously close to the idolatry of the Greek philosophers who believe that the created order is lower than the thoughts and ideas of men. We have discussed this before, but the Bible is not just another thing to be studied, being reduced to organized lists, ideas, or uh-oh, even confessions. We must remember that God's words are life, life in real times and places. Now, again, I'm going to say, I, I like the creeds, I like the confessions. They're helpful tools, they do all kinds of things for us, but don't separate it. People of God, I want you to catechize your children. I want you to teach them truths of God's word. But don't let that be the center. Those help us. Those are guardrails. They assist us. But they are not the words of God. God's word and his story in history through his word should be the center thing of all of our households. Are you with me? Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 says this about this is what God, this is, of course, in the sermon where Moses is speaking to God's people. And he says these things So he, that is God, humbled you and allowed you, this is the people of God, to hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make. You know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Yahweh. That word live means to live, have life, remain alive, sustain life, live prosperously, live forever, to be quickened, to be alive, to be restored to life and health. If the people around you need God, it's going to come from His Word. The Spirit is going to work in their life because of God's Word. Not how winsome you are, not because you have every answer, but because His Spirit is working through His Word. As we come to the end here, I want us to remember this, that the aim of all the actions of Christians is worship. Everything that we do should point to worshiping the Almighty. God said this in this commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And really, this word before me, it is speaking about my face. The face of God. We must be careful that we do not bring idols in and worship God with other idols in our hearts. 
God restores us. He transforms us by his word. We need a new heart. We see God speak in Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning in verse 26. I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And of course, we see this fulfilled in us by the work of Jesus Christ. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, clearly you are an epistle of Christ. That is, you are a letter. You are bringing God's word. Ministered by us, written not with ink, but, but, this, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on ta- tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. People of God, in every area of your life, you get up, all the things that you do should be in worship of the Almighty, should be done to glorify Him. Your work, your family, your social life, all of it should be that we are worshiping. And when we come into this place and we confess our sins together, we can rejoice in God's faithfulness to forgive our sins. We need to live our life with a sense of gratefulness. We should live our lives with thanksgiving for God's mercy and honor Him with no gods before Him in worship in all our days. Psalm 106 says this, Praise Yahweh, O give thanks to Yahweh, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of Yahweh? Who can declare His praise? People of God, by the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on our behalf, we can declare His praise. We can give our thanks. Let us pray. Almighty God, who is our God because of your Son, Jesus Christ, we are grateful for the life that your word brings us in both blessings and curses. May we be doers of your word and in doing so bring healing to the nations. In our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.